Thanks, Devent. Uh, keep your Bibles handy so we can work through these verses together. There are outlines if you would like to follow along and or take notes. There should be some still left by the door in the foyer if you haven't yet got one. Uh, I am a big fan of old churches, beautiful churches. I love uh, the architecture. I love uh, just how stately and grand they are. Uh, I was actually driving through Bothwell yesterday and in Bothwell of all places there's a really big beautiful old church. There's nothing else in Bothwell but there is a nice church there. Uh, I've actually got some examples, there's, there's lots of wonderful churches around the world. I've got some examples uh, for you to see on the overhead behind me. Let's have a look at number one. It's a little bit faded out but you can probably see the outline. Uh, that's, that's Holmes Kirkia, uh, don't quote me, uh, in Iceland. And apparently that's 300 feet tall. So it's, it's pretty big. Uh, let's have a look at the next one. The next one is called La Sagrada Familia. Now that photo makes it look quite small. It's actually enormous. Uh, it's not finished. It's been being built for the last 130 years. Uh, unfortunately, the architect died. Obviously, he's not 130 years old. And so they're just trying to guess at what he would have liked it to look like. Uh, it's pretty amazing. You can't see the detail, but that, that front there is actually a nativity scene etched into the stone. Uh, next one, we've got St. George Church in Lalabella, Ethiopia. Uh, it probably doesn't look that amazing until you realise it's actually carved out of the stone, not built. Well, it does look amazing, you're right. <laughs> That's quite a bit of work. Uh, one more, we've got... Let's have a look. I'm quite proud of this, I took that photo. Uh, <laughs> that is, I oh know it's not a huge church, it's actually very small. That's the Church of the Good Shepherd in Tekapo in New Zealand. Uh, a very beautiful little church in a very beautiful part of the world. And that's only, I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. We could cover hundreds of different other churches which are all beautiful and wonderful and, and tourist destinations in their own right. But as amazing as they are, there is actually another one which, besides which, they all pale in comparison. Uh, a church that's far more stunning, far more glorious, uh, far more incredible. We've got a photo of it. Here it comes. <laughs> I hope you recognise that. <laughs> Our church. Yeah, sure, as a, as a work of architecture, it's probably not up there uh, in world rankings. It may never make uh, the heritage listing. But, not making a joke here, our passage tells us that that church, our church, is equally, perhaps even more stunning, more glorious than all of those ones we've seen. How? Well, that's what we're going to see as we open these verses up and see what they tell us about our church. Last week we saw what Jesus has done, the consequences for us as individuals, the fact that his death gave us life, and it gave us purpose and glory and an eternity. Well, today we're seeing again what Jesus has done for us, but now the consequences are for us, for us as a group, for the body. It's a really striking passage, and it's a key passage in the book of Ephesians. Uh, one of the central passages that really unpacks the whole letter. So we're going to be paying careful attention to it this morning as we work our way through these verses. The passage starts by reminding us uh, that originally it was actually impossible for us to be anything beautiful or anything attractive in any way whatsoever. Why is that so? Why were we so uh, unattractive? Well, Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12. 
He writes this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those calling themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Why were we we're so unattractive? Why were we, we in such... Uh, a bad way. Well, the heart of the problem is who we were. And the issue was, we weren't Jews. We weren't Jews, therefore, we weren't in. We were Gentiles. We were on the outside. Now, that's a problem that I don't imagine has ever kept you up at night, uh, that you're not a Jew. But maybe it should have. Because Paul unpacks the consequences here, and they're terribly serious. See, because we are not Jews... We're on the outer. We're excluded. We're outside. You, you see the things he lists there in verse 12. Uh, first of all, we were separate from Christ. Uh, Jesus himself is not yet in view. He's, he's talking about the idea of the Christ, the promised Messiah and Saviour that God said he would send. See, because we weren't Jews, that promise wasn't ours. We had no claim on it. It was foreign to us. Secondly, we were excluded from citizenship in Israel. That, that nation of promise, that nation chosen by God, it wasn't ours. We were outside of it. We were foreigners to it. Indeed, that's what he keeps on unpacking, doesn't he? We were foreigners to the covenants of promise. The Old Testament is full of God's covenants, generous, gracious commitments that he made to his people. They're not ours. He didn't make them to us. We don't belong. Next, we're without hope. We're outside of any hope. There was nothing for us, no promise, nothing to look forward to, no hint of anything beyond this life. And finally, he sums it up, we were without God. Literally, the word is uh, the, the same word as what we get atheists from. We were atheists. <laughs> we were not the, you know, we, we, we had no gods, but we didn't have the God. We were ultimately on the outside. Everything that was good about God, everything that was desirable and would have given us hope, it was far from us. We were far away from it, excluded from it. And there was no way possible for us to get to it. That's what Paul tells us in verse 14 and 15. He speaks there of uh, the barrier, this dividing wall of hostility made up of the law and its commandments and regulations. All of this good stuff was here and there was no way for us to get it because between us and it stood a dividing wall, the dividing wall of the law. Its ways, its restrictions, the fact that it defined and set apart God's people, all of that served to keep us out. It was insurmountable. We could never get past it. We were on the outer and as such, separated from all the blessings of knowing God. I mean, imagine, uh, imagine you're a kid. Some of you are a kid. Uh, in mind, some of you are. Uh, you're a kid. Your family, not poor, but not particularly well off, you know, just making ends meet. Uh, and you live next door to a family that's very different. The family next door uh, are rich, filthy rich. 
Their, their McMansion, you know, looms over the boundary. It hangs over you. Uh, they're Scrooge McDuck duck rich, you know, too rich to be friends with you. And so all you can do all day uh, is watch them, enjoy their riches. Watch them as they ride their, their latest model motorbikes, as they take their nice boat out every weekend, as they swim in their heated pool, as they play with their expensive toys, they eat the nicest food and uh, wear the coolest clothes. And all you can do is watch. And no, you can never have any of that. It'll never be yours. Your family will never be able to live like that. You'll never get to be a part of that family. It just doesn't work like that. That's never going to be yours. Well, Paul's saying, that, that's us. That's where we were. We were, we were on the outer, only able to, to look in and see all these good things, never to possess them. In between us and them stood this enormous fence, the insurmountable fence of the law. We were on the outside and we had no part. But that's what we were, not who we are now. Let me read from verse 13 through 18. It's a long reading, but it's a description of what Christ has done. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. The 9th of November, 1989, a day some of you will remember, uh, is the day the Berlin Wall fell. That, that concrete symbol of division separating East and West Germany where it was torn down and it divided no more. The communist power that had made it had been eroded and destroyed and that symbol of its power, that wall, fell too. And in that moment, Germany was united and won again. So too here. Because Jesus has destroyed that dividing wall. That, that fence that held us out has been utterly nullified, totally abolished, uh, it's not that he's completely, you know, gotten rid of it. Paul still says that we ought to live by the moral code of the law. But no, what Jesus has done has removed all its power to separate us, to exclude us. It cannot hold us out any longer. And the result? Well, the Jews who had enjoyed and somewhat squandered all that wealth and privilege, the Gentiles, you and me, who are forever outside, have been brought together, united, made one. It's not that we've been amalgamated or stuck together or just associated. We are one, one new man. And in that one new man, thereby reconciled to God himself. American preacher Kent Hughes said this, Jesus didn't Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Gentiles. He didn't create a half-breed. He made an entirely new man. Now Chrysostom, which is, uh, who is one of the early 
church fathers said this, it is as though one took a statue of silver and a statue of lead and put them together in a forge and they came out as a statue of gold. Not only have they become one, they have become better. That is what Jesus has done. He has torn that barrier down. It is gone. It can hold us apart no longer. We are united as one man before God. But even more, we are united together as that one man to God himself. Because Jesus' blood, Jesus' death has given peace. It has ended the hostility. It has broken the enmity. It has given peace. When the Bible talks about peace, the concept is uh, wholeness, is, is completeness, is rightness. And that is what Jesus has created between us and God. All of us, Jew and Gentile, all of us who our sin, our offences had kept us separated and hostile to God, all of us are brought near because everything that stood between us is gone. We are reconciled to one another and together reconciled to him we have peace with god this truth is life-changing in fact it's world-changing and it bears thinking through what that actually looks like for us so this truth actually defines the way we ought to relate to one another when we look around this room uh, we may not know each other as well as uh, we like or deserve when we see believers in other churches around the world Again, we might be separated to some degree, but what this is telling us is that God has actually made us one with all of them, with everyone here, with all believers around the world. Everything that, that may have kept us apart, race, age, demographic, God has overcome, He's reconciled. We are one in Him. It's not that our differences don't exist anymore, it's that God has actually transcended them all by making us one in Jesus. And as such, our church, our community is, is to be a light, a witness to this world. A place where people who wouldn't ordinarily or normally spend time with one another do. Not because we just share you know, mutual free time on a Sunday morning or particular hobbies or common interests, but because we share something higher, greater, far more wonderful. We share in Jesus, our Saviour. We share in the peace that He's won. We all want this unity to characterise our church. A lot of you were here when we did that survey a, couple, a year and a bit ago and that's one of the things that many of you answered that you liked in our church and wanted more of. That, that unity, that community together. Uh, and as elders, we, we, we hear that we're working towards that, which is why uh, later in the year we're going to be mixing up our small groups to, to foster more community, to grow us closer together as a family of God because we want this for our church. We want to grow in this and demonstrate it to the world around us. Part of this new man, this, this new community, is not only defining who we are, but defining how we deal with one another when we disagree, when we have conflict. See, if God has overcome that great barrier that held us apart, the law, if He's reconciled bitter and divided enemies, the Jew and Gentile, then how dare we ever separate what he's brought together? How dare we break what he has created in Christ? 
See, when we fail to forgive one another, when we hold on to conflicts or grudges, we break what Jesus died to bring together. We fall short of this reconciliation that He has made amongst us that ought to define us. See, what this is telling us is that we have unity, we have reconciliation, and that we ought to live up to that by forgiving one another, by showing grace in ever-increasing measure to one another, by resolving our conflicts, even at cost to ourselves, by coming together, even with those whom we've struggled to relate well to, even with those with whom we've had problems, because that's what God intends for us, to be one man, to be one body. And we do this, we can do this, because already He's reconciled us to Himself. Because already in Christ and through Him, we have peace and intimacy and the blessing of being God's own people. So there is no need for you to ever doubt how God views you. If you're in Jesus, you have peace with God. You have a whole, a complete, a full relationship with Him. Everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do that would have separated you or held you away from God has already been forgiven, has already been taken away. It's as if it doesn't exist. And because of that reconciliation, you, each of you, has perfect access to God through His Spirit. Perfect, unrestricted access, just like a child to their father. I actually think, as kids, uh, I actually think all of our kids get this far better than, our adult, uh, than we as adults do. Uh, it's, it's actually one of the reasons why I now have to work at church. Uh, Amira knows I'm her dad. Uh, she knows I love her. And therefore, she is absolutely confident that she has unrestricted access to me at all times. <laughs> She also knows where my office is and so she knows she can find me there and that when she bangs on my door, no matter what I'm doing, I, I can't resist opening it to her. Uh, it doesn't matter what her reasons are, it might just be to show me her hair or her dress, uh, to show me which Duplo figure is daddy today, to point out a bird, point out the sun, to show me a picture. She might have even forgotten why she's there <laughs> but she knows I'll still open the door she knows I want to hear. Now, if that's how earthly fathers work, fallible as we are, how much more our heavenly Father? We have perfect, you have perfect, unlimited, unrestricted access to Him. You can bang on His door and He will never not open it to you. I know we often look at our, our own requests and concerns as, as being small or insignificant or, or too little to bother him with, but it's not true. He wants to hear from you. He loves to hear from you because that is the sort of access he has given you in his spirit through Jesus. That is what it means to be fully reconciled to him through Christ's blood. But there is more here. God has drawn us together as one new man. He has given us access to himself. But now what's his purpose? What's he doing with that one new man? What's his, what's his plan in this? Well, the answer is actually astonishing. Look with me at verses 19 through to 22. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. I learned the other day that uh, originally in the US political system, the, the Constitution said that the President would be the one who won the most votes in the election. Very logical, I'm sure you probably knew that already. But it also said that the Vice President would be the one who won the second most votes in that election. Didn't matter if they were from different parties, didn't matter if they'd previously been bitter enemies, they would then be the government. Uh, you can imagine how long that lasted. <laughs> it didn't last very long at all. It was overturned in the 12th Amendment because it didn't work. Uh, bitter enemies, bitter rivals could not work together at such a high level. It was utterly impossible. It didn't work at all. But what's impossible on a human scale is possible for God because that is exactly what He does. He takes His enemies, He takes us, and he transforms us into his partners, his running mates in his work. Let's see what he does to us there in verse 19 and 20. He, he makes us citizens of his kingdom. More, he makes us members of his family. Even more, he makes us building blocks in his temple. He makes us central to his purpose, central to his plan, the means by which he is going to fill the world and be praised and glorified for all time. How does he do that? Well, he builds on the work he began in Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of that work. Uh, in the early 90s, archaeologists in Jerusalem found uh, the five cornerstones of the temple that had been destroyed almost 2,000 years before. Now, we've got to kind of get that picture right in our mind. A cornerstone is not, you know, what the, the builder just drops into place to kind of make a start on the building. Uh, these cornerstones are enormous. The biggest was 16.7 by 3.4 by 4.2 metres. Uh, if you're struggling to visualise that, that's bigger than the big shipping containers on the train. That's a big stone. Uh, 570 tonnes it weighed. That is the cornerstone of the temple. And on those cornerstones were then laid the foundations. The, the, the cornerstones were essentially the piers, uh, holding that building in place, defining how big it was going to be, defining the shape of that building. Well, Paul says Jesus is the cornerstone of God's work. He is the cornerstone of God's building project. How that building is going to look, how big it's going to be, what it's going to do is all defined in Him because it all rests on Him. And on that cornerstone, on Christ, God has built a foundation already. He's given apostles, He's given prophets to, to build on that, resting on Jesus. But still that work continues. The cornerstones are set, the foundations are built, but the walls are going up. Rooms are being added. God's temple is not yet finished. Because we, the community of God, are part of that structure. We are building blocks in that temple that's even now continuing to grow. The place he lives is the place that we are being built into. 
our church, Alveston Reformed Church, is being included in that eternal plan. It's been going for 2,000 years. It will last forevermore and we're included into it. We are part of his temple. Now, the, the, the picture Paul uses here, this, this idea of a temple, it's so rich. Uh, we, we, we need to understand what it means to these, to these believers, what the idea of a temple meant uh, to, to kind of get our mind around this. See, for the Old Testament believers, the idea of a temple, it was everything. That's why there was such horror, such mourning when the temple was destroyed, such jubilation when it was rebuilt. Because, see, the, the temple was the one place on earth you could go to be near God. If you wanted to experience Him and His presence, that's where you had to be. God lived there in the temple. His presence dwelt there. If you wanted Him, you had to go there. But now that's all changed. There's no temple in Jerusalem. There's no physical temple at all. Even if you were to build one today, it would be nothing more than just a building. Now, it's not that the church has become that building. It's not that our church buildings are that temple. They're just buildings. Now, instead, now the people of God, you and me, us as a community, we are God's temple. We've been made into the place where He dwells. This one man that He's created is now the one place where He dwells. We are building blocks in His dwelling place. Ordinary, average, small though we are, we are a part of His great and eternal work. The most glorious work ever undertaken. We are part of it. We have a place in it. That's got to rewrite how we look in our church, doesn't it? Now, I know things are not perfect here. I know things frustrate uh, us at times. I know there's times where our church lets us down and disappoints us. Uh, I know there's things we'd like to change about it. We'd like that we're different. And we can acknowledge those things, we ought to work on those things, but we shouldn't let them overcome us or overshadow who we are. Because despite, through, even in all of those things, God is still doing an eternal work in us. He's still doing amazing work. This church, despite its flaws, is still part of His holy temple. And we ought to value and prize it as such. The very fact that we are God's temple actually tells us a lot about what He's got in store for us. So the point of the Old Testament temple was that everyone would come to it. You, you would gather at the temple. If you wanted to uh, be blessed by meeting, by experiencing God, you had to travel to Jerusalem. That's where you could get it. You, you had to physically enter that temple. But not anymore. Because now we're that temple. We together are the place where God dwells, the place where, where He's learned of, where He's experienced and encountered. Uh, the, the temple is more like a caravan. It's mobile. It goes wherever God's people go. And that's why Jesus left us with that command, to go. Because in us going, through us as God's temple, the world sees and learns of God. We are His means to that end. We are the place, the only place, where the world will see and learn of and experience God. In us, in God's people, in His church. Now, we're not just talking about church here on Sunday, uh, what we do on, on every Sunday morning. We're talking about you as a church, us as a church. Wherever we gather, wherever we go in this world, we go as 
his church together. See, that's the strange thing about God's building project. As wonderful and beautiful and, and glorious as it already is, it's not finished. It's still growing. Still being added to. God alone knows how big it's going to get. But the signs are, he's still got a lot of work to do and a lot of adding planned. See, we, we get to delight in that. <laughs> we get to find out and see every year just how he's going to go about that. What he's going to do, how he's going to grow it, where he's going to increase it next. How glorious and wonderful it will be. And our privileges, we get to be part of that work. We're not only the place where he dwells, we're the ones through whom he builds. We are his temple. We have perfect intimacy in him because he lives in us. We have perfect security in him because he is always with us. And we have a perfect purpose in him because his temple grows through us. We're learning uh, at the moment that any time you set out on a building project, uh, you pretty much straight away jump into a whole bunch of uncertainties. Uncertainties of cost, of timing, of how the process goes, even what the result at the end will look like. But not so with God's building project. The cost is paid, Christ's blood has covered it all. The timing is set, God knows it completely, every step, every stage. The process is clear, it is growth in and through us by his power. And the result? Well, it's glory and wonder and praise to God. Because we are his building project, reconciled to him in Christ, his dwelling place, part of his holy temple. Let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you, for you have done, you are doing wonderful things in and through us. Father, you have reconciled us, you have overcome everything that held us apart from you. The law and our own sinfulness is gone, for you have given us peace. And what's more, you have included us in your people, for you have reconciled us to yourself in Jesus' blood. But even more, Father, you have chosen us for your work. You have chosen us even to be your dwelling place, given us this incredible privilege and purpose. Father, help us to see ourselves, help us to see our church as you see us, yours, glorious, precious to you, saved for your purpose. Father, we pray that your glorious, wonderful, holy temple might continue to grow in and through us. Help us to see it grow, help us to be a part of that growth that your name would be praised in us and that you would receive all glory. We ask this in Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen.